There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Strive Live, it is uh, Ludmilla Marlova's turn. She's with us in the studio. Very nice to see you. Good to be here, as uh, always. So we're going to talk legal for 40 minutes. If you have a question for Ludmilla, she is your friendly legal voice. That's what we should christen the segment. Your friendly legal voice, rather than Drive Live Talks Legal. We should do it that way. What was that again? No, no, it came out wrong. Yeah. I have a problem with my throat. I think I've got your lurgy that you I'm sorry if you've got it. Yeah, thanks It is my much. fault. Oh, well, moving back. Uh, so your friendly legal voice, Miller, is here. If you want to talk to her, 431010-4001 or via the free app. Let's launch straight in with the news that was announced overnight. Series of tweets from His Highness. And these are... Uh, sweeping changes is the phrase that Sanud used. It is truly a sweeping change. Ten-year visas, potentially. Do you know anything other than uh, what we've heard? In all fairness, not very much. Not right. much more than what's been published in the, in the media. And what's really important to highlight is that for now, the decision to introduce these changes has been approved. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the sweeping change we're talking about. But uh, the regulation... Um, that puts forward the the legislation that will address the, the various changes and the relevant details has not yet been issued. Uh, now, according to the, the the public statements that have been made regarding these new regulations, and they and they affect various um, various types of laws and various types of industries, uh, that uh, we should be anticipating something in a final form by third quarter of this year and then end of this year. So, by the end of the year, we should see. The, the regulations discussing or outlining the procedures for the 10-year visa and the five-year uh, visa for students and the 100% ownership law in further details. But until such notice, all um, we know right now is that the decision has been made and that's probably uh, probably most we've, um, most certainty, most level of certainty we've seen in a long time regarding this particular topic of, for example, 100% ownership mm. uh, for companies or foreign businesses. Uh, but uh, the law has not been changed yet. So don't rush tomorrow and try to set up a company 100% in, in your name because you will not, outside of a free zone, obviously, because you, you will not be qualified yet. And similarly with the visas, for now, things have not changed. I'd say the earliest is the third quarter of this year, uh, as per the news. Okay, so it seems likely. I mean, we don't know what it might cost to have a 10-year visa. We don't know if there may be tax implications to set up onshore rather than offshore in a free zone, for example. Well, we, what we do know is that with regards to the visa is that right now the visa is maximum in the free, inside the free zones. The residence visa is for three years. Outside of the free zones under DED, it's two years. Yeah. So according to this, and also the investor, so-called their investor visa in Dubai, which mm. has not been federal, and uh, that's on the back of owning property, is also for three years. I mean, that's so the longest uh, term of visa has been three years. So according to this announcement, it will be 10 years and it will be for certain kinds of professionals, skilled professionals, such as medical scientists, engineers, yeah. and other valuable professionals to society as, as obviously the government deems uh, deems that relevant, but other than that, we and and also for students, there will be I think for students right now, it's uh, these are limited visas now. After, according to this regulation, it'll be for five years, and also for certain for parents uh, that are under sponsorship, as they too will have longer period of time to be in the UAE after they've graduated from universities. So that's basically the level of detail we know. Mm. Nothing more mm. than that. So I want to be cautious, so we don't we don't give out 
hopes as if this is already in, in effect. No, I mean, we've had a number of texts in today asking very specific questions. How do you qualify as an investor? And I don't want to draw a parallel between the existing investor visa and what may be termed an investor visa for the purposes of the new regulations. But in order to qualify for an investor visa, what are the stipulations there? Well, you see, investor, what kind of investor we're we talking well, about right now. Yeah. So there, there could potentially be two types of investors. One is a real estate investor, which is what we traditionally re- refer to when we talk about investor visas in the context of Dubai and the other one could be business investors so yeah. if you're investing into a business uh, so it's not clear which one of, of the, the two types of investment visas we're talking about perhaps it's both but just by way of, of current background is that the investor visa that does exist today it only exists in Dubai not in any other Emirates and that yeah. basically allows uh, those who own properties over a million dirhams to qualify for residence visa. They cannot work under that visa, but they certainly can can have full rights and benefits that come with a residency status and uh, sponsor their family and, and the domestic staff. Okay, let's go to line four, talk to Mohammed, who uh, has been waiting a little while. Sorry to keep you waiting, Mohammed. Nice to have you on. So you are a computer scientist. Yeah, thank you for having me. I have uh, the major in computer sciences and I've been working in the in the technology field for the last eight years. So I was I, I read through all the description about this news, mm-hmm. and it says technical fields. I want uh, this term to be more elaborated so that I could feel comfortable because it, this news has really got me exciting since last night, and I want to be sure if I would be falling in that category, what the technical field will be uh, included, and does it include bachelor's in computer sciences or not? And this is why we have to be very cautious, because right now we do not uh, we do not have those details available to the public yet. So we do know that, generally speaking, uh, these the, the 10-year visa will apply to scientists. Uh, there have been references to scientific and those uh, those co- uh, those professions that deal with innovation. Now, based on what you've described, it sounds like you would qualify. But again, until the regulation is in place and we know exactly um, how each one of those specifications is uh, defined, it's. It, I want to be cautious about commenting anymore, just because this is why it's it's, it's essential that we have the regulation in place first, so that we know how to um, how to start planning our lives. All right, I understand that. Uh, sorry, the second question is that uh, uh, do we see any clarifications coming in the next two days? Do we know that the implementation of this law will be done in the third quarter or by the end of this year? So do we see any uh, clarifications coming through so that uh, we, we could uh, understand what all of this means? and if any other fields will be included in those categories or not. I would say the only clarifications that uh, that are would we would deem reliable to rely on uh, would be announced in the law itself once it's announced and once it's been published. Now the law has there have been discussions that the law is at least the, the Ministry of Economy has been requested to provide the law by the third quarter of this year and so until such time whatever other announcements are being made in the news they are I just want to highlight that they are just that they're just announcements so we need to be careful and not make any judgments until the law actually has been implemented which I would say closer to the end of the year Mohammed, let's hope it's good news for you appreciate you calling today hoping the same thank you so much all right then that's Mohammed on line five 
You had a question. NLT. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of excitement, Ludmilla, isn't there? Lots mm. of people wondering how this might impact them or potentially family, friends. And I have a friend who got very excited last night, based in the UK, very successful entrepreneur, and she was hoping to bring her business to Dubai. And she's like, what does this mean for me? Um, and, and she owns a hair salon. And um, she said to me, Can, am I included? And I said, I, I, I really don't know. I can't tell you any more than the information we have so far. And she said, you know, would I qualify as an investor if I'm opening a business? So lots of people are, are thinking, well, this could be an opportunity for me to come to Dubai and invest, whether it's in a business like my friend or possibly in rental markets, like you said, possibly buying property. So it is a bit of a let's not get too excited until we know what you can do. Well, I think we, we, it, we deservedly, uh, people are excited for good reasons. And I think that um, it's, it's okay for us to continue to be excited, but we just cannot really make any concrete plans or life-changing plans mm. until the law is actually in effect. So we know exactly who will benefit and, who, and whose status will remain the same. But I will tell you, even now, the, the fact that... Uh, uh, at this point, our visa is only for three years. It does not necessarily impair our ability to stay there, right? Because the visa does get renewed every three years. So mm. I am interested uh, in seeing whether this, let's say, 10-year visa somehow will have... Um, you know, will perhaps carry through from employer to employer. So yeah. in other words, you don't necessarily need to change the visa from employer to employer. Um, and uh, you, if you get, let's say, if you're a doctor, you get your 10-year visa, and it doesn't matter who you work uh, for, your 10-year visa is secured. I don't know. Um, we've seen references like that before for certain kinds of professions that that might be an option. So perhaps that's how uh, how this uh, this new resolution is, is going to be drafted. But we don't know. But again, if you, for, for friends like yours and for so many other others if you qualify here first time around for three-year visa the renewal of the visa has in most cases not been an issue so it's as yeah. long as you have a job you have the visa uh, unless this particular visa type will introduce a little more flexibility in terms of having a job and you know perhaps if you have your own practice you mm. can you can secure a longer visa but again I'm, I'm, I'm being very cautious um, but speculating how exactly it's going to look until the law is actually in place. Okay, new regulations over visas and company ownership. Those are the details we have at the moment. Uh, no full details, but they are going to be announced in due course. We're going to move on from that. Lamilia Marlova is here with us as well for our legal discussion. She's our legal voice. Questions? Usual numbers, 4001 via the free app, 423-1010. Lot to get to, but if you do have a question, get it in as early as you can. Let's drive live. Drive live. Talks legal. Now, let's uh, see, Ludmilla, if we can talk to... I think it's going to be Ruby on the line in a few moments' time. Ruby has a question. It is for a friend, and it's all about visa renewals. Let's talk to Ruby. Afternoon to you, Ruby. Sorry to keep you waiting just now, but at least we got to you uh, in the end. What was your question for, Ludmilla? Hi, I'm asking for a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, she's working in Dubai for eight years. Okay. It's about her visa is going to expire, and she got um, she was notified just a few weeks ago that the government could not uh, no longer renew her visa due to her citizenship status. So, um, will she be liable for the um, for the loans and the credit cards that she still needs to pay? Or um, can she get a police clearance or a good moral character since she's? 
it might be required. Yeah, it's a bit okay. Sure, and no, great mm-hmm. question. So the two are actually very separate um, rights and and separate mm-hmm. obligations. Um, so the fact that her visa is being um, is, is not being renewed, it's an it's an immigration decision. It's the great uh, uh, falling under the immigration laws and policies. Now, with mm-hmm. regards to her loans and her debts, I mean that's obviously the commercial laws. So the two are not dependent on one another. So mm-hmm. yes, she will uh, remain to be uh, remain liable f- to repay all her loans and and um, and and satisfy her other obligations before she's able to receive the police clearance. So the fact that she is not she is not um, able to stay in the country from the immigration standpoint has nothing to do with uh, mm-hmm. with does not give her the right to walk away from her financial obligations otherwise. Mm-hmm. So the only thing she can do is repay those loans and then um, and then uh, apply for police certificate because otherwise she will not be able to. And we have seen these kinds of cases where people have left. And then request were requested to um, to, to produce yeah. uh, uh, police certificates, and then unless you have a clean record here, you won't be able to do so. Ruby, okay. hope things work out for your friend. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Appreciate you calling. Let's uh, go to Salim. Question for you, Lord Miller. My parents have uh, a maid who is under my father's sponsorship. Is it okay if the housemaid comes to my house to help out? My parents live in their own apartment. How does that work? Uh, very good question. Uh, in general, yes, it's okay. And this is because of the family connection. Okay. Uh, so g- the general rule is that uh, the, the employee who's being sponsored by, uh, obviously, the, the sponsor, so they um, their right to work is limited to um, working for that sponsor. Uh, sometimes for certain professions, less so for domestic staff, uh, you can have contractual arrangements where you can contract out your uh, employees. Uh, but with domestic staff, that's not necessarily the case under the current scenario that Salim described. But with regards to families, the um, they are considered to be, especially that's kind of a close connection, uh, they're considered to be part of the same family. So that's that should be fine. Okay. Salim's asking another question as well. Is it possible to have two names? I don't know if it's, these are family names or not, but is it possible to have two names on the resident tenancy agreement and also on the ajari yes it is possible but but you need to you need to be prepared to show the connection um, so let's say husband and wife or I mean brother and sister for example but there has to be some sort of a connection that is recognized by the authorities in this country and um, so and that way yes you can have and uh, don't, don't believe otherwise because we have heard reports oh that's not possible it is possible we've seen it happen many times would what, it I mean, I'm on. sorry I was just thinking I don't know if you're thinking the same thing NLT. what about I don't know, flat sharing I want to yeah, share exactly with my I was, yeah, I was thinking my mate Steve and me want to live in the same place put a dartboard up and you know all that well, that's in theory. That's possible because okay. as as far as as long as the landlord agrees to it, and the two male living or the two female living in the sharing sure. the accommodation, as long as the landlord allows for the two people to be yeah. to rent, uh, and one and two, the the property is fit to accommodate two people. Yeah. And then the authorities will not have an issue. And so obviously, whenever you start sharing with opposite sex, for example, or for a property that is accommodating a lot more people than it's really sure. meant to. I mean. Under the laws of the land, within those boundaries, I mean, I understand that, but I mean, it, it just it almost sort of formalizes a flat sharing agreement, doesn't it? So yeah. that if you have that joint tenancy, that joint ejari agreement, you 
I suppose, perhaps feel a little bit more confident that you share bills and, you know, if you have a garden, whatever it is. Right, know. yes. And um, and also, for, we've seen, for example, it depends on the jurisdiction for a number of people, sometimes they need to present certificates, utility bills yeah. to their home country for one reason or another, in yeah. particular yeah. Uh, in connection with uh, deregistering, for example, as a tax resident. And authorities in other countries do ask for documentation from some gov- government documentation that you actually have residency here. Mm. And we've been seen, seen cases where spouses are not able to do it because all they have is a lease that's in the name of the husband. But it doesn't, it's the law does not prevent you from, from limiting it to one. And that's one. But from the landlord's standpoint, what's important, and this is why perhaps some of the landlords may be resistant uh, to, um, to allowing this, is that um, they worry that, okay, well, if somebody defaults, so what am I going to have to chase each one of them separately? Mm-hmm. But there is usually a clause, I think there's even a clause in the sort of the old standard format of a lease agreement we've seen before that the parties that jointly several liable which means and so and if you don't whichever agreement you use as long as you have that clause that means that the landlord will always be able to go uh, either after any one of those parties or both of them equally it's inter- it's interesting question though. We have quite a few more for you, Ludma. This one's a bit more involved. So if we take this slowly. Hi, I've um, resigned and I believe my employer owes me money for unused vacation days from 2017. Now, if I transfer my visa to another company, um, my employer will then, of course, cancel my visa. But do I still have the right to pursue the owed money legally or does cancelling my visa mean I have received all my rights, everything I feel I'm due? What are my options? Uh, well, uh, it's um, some of it depends. Actually, no. It's if you sign this document, uh, and let's say because the process is such, often is that before you receive any of the money, you have to sign the form, and that's how a lot of employers structure their practices. So, and any one of these documents that you have signed off will only be effective um, as far as the other side complying with its side of obligations, because we—that's a concern that we often hear—is that well, I've signed off that I've received all my dues, because that's what the employer required before they would um, transfer any money but at that point when I sign the document I have not received the money yet so what does that what if they don't pay what happens well any kind of agreement such as that where if the employer does not ultimately pay then the agreement is not effective so you'll always be able to uh, uh, to challenge the validity of the agreement on that basis Uh, so in this case um, uh, you it's it's a claim for a vacation so if you've signed let's say if there is a in that form, the final form, it says, "Ah, yes, I have received my my all my dues for vacation." If it specifically uh, lists that as an entitlement which you have already been compensated for, you may later have a challenge um, to arguing to the court that um, somehow you have not received it if it's specifically listed. But the general practice, what we see is the employers will say, "Okay, well, here, just sign a general statement that you received all your dues." So if you sign a general statement like that, it does not prevent you later on to come to and, and claim whatever other entitlements you have not received yet in court. So that so-called um, the, the settlement agreement will not be effective because it's just too general. Uh, but there is one issue about the vacation. You said you, you're claiming vacation for 2017. You need to be mindful of the statute of limitation that is limited to one year. And for any employment uh, employment claims, the statute of limitation is only one year. So if you're talking about your vacation um, that um, for 2017, that in 2017 might have ended in terms of your vacation allowance yeah. in the middle of summer, then unless you bring your case before the, uh, the middle of summer here now in 2018, you will have lost your right. 
right to claim for that reason. So not because you've signed off that you received the dues, but rather because of the statute of limitation. Okay, so 365 calendar days applies here. Yes. You can't just say it was 2017 in court. Okay, I understand. Right, let's talk about scam slightly, just before uh, another quick break. We'll come back to more questions in a moment. But if you, uh, just as a reminder, if you have a question for Ludmilla, text it through or call us 423 uh, as Ruby did. Uh, lots of people are texting in. Uh, we'll talk about the ground floor flat question in a moment. Also, Sanjay uh, wants to know a little bit more about our original topic, which is new rules on visas and company ownerships. Cases related to various types of Scams. We've talked about scams a few times, but what was it you wanted to bring up today? Well, we've actually had a number of cases over the last month uh, and um, scams that are that are actually quite devastating for a lot of people. And so I just wanted to raise that um, issue because it's it's been announced by various authorities as well. Because, you know, for example, the DFC, we've heard in the last several months, the DFC authority has um, uh, published, pub- published a few notifications about um, various entities impersonating to be acting on behalf of the DIFC. So these scams <laughs> exist everywhere. In fact, ironically enough, I just received a notification a few days ago from the California bar by which I'm uh, where I'm licensed. Uh, same sort of thing. They're cautioning all the California practitioners um, because there has been a scam that permeated the, the, the foundational system of the California bar. Imagine that. I mean, the scale of it. And California bar is in the Silicon Valley. Mm. Or I guess the Silicon Valley is in, is in California. So even at that level, scams happen. And the scams we're talking about, they really um, refer more to hacking. So we've had a number of cases where, for example, uh, some, an investor who has been using a currency exchange a, a firm to um, to transfer money for currency conversion, I guess preferential currency cur- conversion, uh, and used the same firm for many years, made an investment, once again made an- another transfer, and then later realized that in fact um, the, um, uh, the the bank account which the company so-called company gave him to to which he should have should, should have transferred the money actually was um, was the wrong was a hacker's bank account so in fact they thought they were transferring to the same outfit but somebody had hacked into their system had sent an email that um, that appeared from the same be sent from the same company uh, and but gave different bank account uh, details and uh, the person transferred, not really think anything else, but it's so it's because somebody had actually hacked into his system, saw that he had done these transactions before and uh, provided different banking details. And then what they do is that they close the shop very quickly. We actually had a case just recently uh, where that happened. Somebody somebody transferred money here in the UAE. There were two different bank accounts here in the UAE. Mm. Uh, and again, they were fraudulent, I guess, account, bank accounts given by fraudsters who had hacked into the system. And uh, the minute they received the money, they took the, the money and uh, closed the bank accounts and left. So the police actually did track the people that owned uh, those bank accounts. But by the time they did that, uh, the people had already left. Um, so that's one of the cases. Wow. The other one, we actually had a, a, an emplo- uh, a client who was an employee who received an email from what he thought was an executive of his company uh, saying this is, this is a top priority matter it's very confidential and because the employee is also very senior and said this is in, in order to avoid insider trading and other matters like that so you know we ask you basically let's let's take this topic uh, so to so to speak offline to a different um, uh, different email domain but the original email and the original few sets of emails actually came from the domain that matches the company's domain mm-hmm. so think about it so it's not either the the email email came from somebody from a different so it's actually the company system had been compromised and so the employee long story short the employee in that case transferred money 
from on behalf of the company uh, to these scammers. And um, and yeah, and only to realize months later that this actually was not legitimate through threat of correspondences. So I mean, that's and I tell you, we have seen so many cases like that. This is just you know two three cases I've, I've mentioned that we've heard of in the last uh, month, uh, but there've been many more, and they're quite devastating in terms of in terms of its effect because most of these scammers they don't operate on a thousand dollar transfers. Sure. They're much 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 large amounts of money. Uh, and there's very little in terms of protection or compensation that uh, victims can do. So we've uh, looked into various laws, in particular, if banks, um, if the ba- if banks have any kind of protection or insurance uh, coverage for these kind of scams, and if there's a way to recall. And in essence, there isn't really much, at least not for now. The banking uh, the banking regulations here do not have a special insurance to cover or to protect banks from, or I guess victims from from fraudsters. Um, I mean, perhaps it's something that, that will be forthcoming, but for now it doesn't exist. And when you do want to recall, you can only recall to the extent that money has not left the account yet. But usually by the time, these scammers are quite well-versed in what they're doing. So by the time anybody ever gets notice of this, they've already closed the account and emptied the Once the you have that cash physically, where on earth do you go? You can track it to that point. But after that... Needle in haystack. Not even that. Well, that's it because because let's again in are the cases we've dealt with a number of them actually had bank accounts abroad. So mm. imagine you are mm. here, you transfer money to somebody in China. Sure. Okay, so even if it's a large amount of money, and if so, you do have the name of the, the whoever held the account, and often these um, the accounts are held in some in the name of a company. So imagine by the time you you travel to China, you hire somebody there to investigate this for you, you find out who the company belonged to and so on and so forth. So this cross-jurisdictional challenges of, of doing due diligence investigate investigation in many cases is prohibitively expensive and it's just emotionally, psychologically very difficult. It's a timely reminder, isn't it? That's just a couple of scams that Lamella's come across. Drive Live talks legal. Approximately, let's talk to Zainab who wants to ask you a question. Lamella Yamalava is here from Yamalava and Plethka. Zainab, you have a tenancy question. Uh, I believe your landlord is demanding uh, a payment you think is a little bit too much. Is that right? Uh, just the, for the tenant's contract, I have five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, that five years is going, doing okay. So he asked me to pay the VAT 2018-2019 because my contract will be the end of 2019. Right. So he asked me that two years to pay one time. And it's a lot of money, and the market a little bit slow, and I requested for him to pay it for the yearly, because then uh, still 2019, he doesn't come. So he opened the case. I went there. The people, they talking because me, I don't speak that much of Arabic, and I don't have any idea. So they speak it, and uh, I told him, uh, the judge, the guy translation always he said quiet wait don't talk so the guy he get the lawyer and uh, his lawyer is arabic he's talking and he explained the judge the judge he get decision date 15 and he said you should pay the vat and you have to vacate from the building Okay, so you have to pay the VAT for 2018 and then vacate. Is that am I correct in assuming that? 2018, 2019. The and vacate in 2019, end of 2019. Is that right? 
Yeah, to be one time, like, you know, both. Sure. So, so Zainab, okay. let me just go in the interest of time. Let me let me uh, jump straight in. So with regards to the VAT, the way the law is drafted, and I'm trying to con- convey it in very simple terms, is that the obligation to pay VAT um, arises either whenever the invoice is issued or when the payment is due, whichever is first. So if your obligation under the contract to pay for rent, for example, is two years up front, and some contracts are drafted that way, Therefore, your obligation to pay VAT arises at that point in time, along with your pay- with your payment of rent. So let's say, but if you have a contract for two years, but you're paying rent quarterly, then you could pay uh, you could pay the VAT also quarterly. Uh, but so basically, your obligation to pay VAT is linked to your payment plan of the rent itself. So that's so if, if that's how your um, your agreement was structured then the, the basically judge I imagine ruled on that basis. With regards to the or the the ruling on vacating, obviously we haven't seen the documents but I would I would imagine that um, because the landlord uh, must have asserted that you had breached the com- contract for having failed to pay a certain payment, the VAT is an obligation on the tenant. Uh, so then, in, in that case, since you, you you breached the contract because or breached the law because you did not follow the law by f- virtue of paying, then that does present grounds for breach of contract and therefore uh, grounds for termination. So I imagine so that probably would happen. That being said, you can appeal the, the decision if you don't agree, and perhaps this time around you can you can retain a lawyer, obviously, if commercially it makes sense for you, um, so that you don't feel the disadvantage when the landlord is presented there by you know with a lawyer who speaks Arabic. Zainab, appreciate yeah, you calling. But, 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 All the best. Um, we are very short of time. Let's just quickly go to the text very lines. Very quick question for you, Ludmilla. This is about access. Hi, I bought a ground floor, f- floor flat and found at the time of the snagging inspection that the FIC manholes are inside my garden. I've been informed that a door will be open to the outside maintenance company for access whenever required. This wasn't in the contract, never discussed with me before the inspection. What are my rights? How can I resolve this issue? Uh, well, in short, this is not really contractually, um, I guess you can't really blame it to the contract on the contract it's more about um, it's a government or a municipal regulation that requires for the authorities to, to have access um, so then of itself you cannot contract around um, so that's an obligation that arises under the laws you the municipality or the government agencies in the need to have access and therefore they must have access and there's not much about it now I think the point you're making is is more that had you known about it whether you could have done something else well in, in that case that is a legitimate question uh, question uh, but this is why there is um, you know the, I guess the recommendation is to do due diligence property due diligence before you actually commit yourself to buying property because these kinds of things do, they do happen and just because it's not in the contract I mean often the contracts are structured in such a way that the due diligence is on the um, on the, um, um, is the is the burden for the buyer and even if it's not contractually so I mean the, legally or, or logically speaking it should be the, the burden of um, the proper due diligence is on you so therefore really it is your mistake in legal terms for not having identified that issue as being uh, an issue that obviously is a serious issue for you right now uh, on which you think had you known about this before you might not have gone ahead with the property Um, but be it as it may at this point in time whether even if you had known about it you could not have actually but you really wanted to buy the property there's not really anything you can do because it is a government issue they must have access to, um, to, to this manhole and there's nothing you can do about it until they've relocated it
Ludmilla Yamalova is from Yamalova and Pleska. We have a number of questions we didn't get to. We will get to those next week. But thank you for texting in, Ludmilla. Thank you for being here as well. Always a pleasure. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.